Hi everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne. That is Chris Sacknesson. Chris, how are you doing this Monday afternoon? I'm I'm pretty well, David. I've, I think I've recovered from the strained calf, although I'm not up to uh, full uh, mountain walking again. I did develop a little bit of weird bruising on my instep, which I don't know if that's related or not, but it's on the same leg. But I'm feeling pretty good. I've had a, a really vigorous week of, of discovering some uh, uh, authors and celebrities that I've kind of heard of, but I hadn't investigated that I'm really um, sort of digging on. David Blaine, the, the magician mm-hmm. and extreme endurance performer. What a weird, interesting dude. He's cool. uh, I'm actually going to see him. Uh, I booked a ticket for his Vegas show. Um, but then James Nestor, the, the sort of uh, science adventure writer who, uh, for breath, about mm-hmm. breathing and lost mm-hmm. human skills, uh, he's got another book called Deep or The Deep. Very interesting, uh, very vigorous, uh, robust thinking writer. Uh, very no country, I think, in terms of, of his subject. And then a, a Japanese writer who I've heard of, and I, I, someone tried to take me to one of the film versions of it, uh, but Kobo Abe, Abe? yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. The Woman in the Dunes. Uh, it, uh, I'm not as big a fan of, of Murakami as you are, uh, and as a lot of writers I know, uh, I'm a huge, huge fan of um, Mishima or Mishima, uh, mm-hmm. who's a big fan of Abe, and uh, I, I, I find that book very, very, very interesting. Uh, you know that glimpse into a certain you know era of Japan that uh, uh, just opens up the door. You know, it's uh, it was the we right might have a crossover episode then for Agitator, might have to get you on to talk about the woman in the dunes. I'd love to do that. I I think that's a whole uh, world of vision and uh, cultural cultural depth of field that I, I, I was really I, I quite I'm quite amazed by what he's able to do. It's it's not a you know it's not a huge sprawling uh, giant thing, but geez, it's good. I'd love to talk about that. I, I think there was um, some fascinating things going on there. There's my favorite David Blaine trick. I'll never forget it. I saw it on TV. He was doing man on the street card tricks, uh, which he's really elevated to the, the next level. I've never seen anybody do stuff like this. But he does one of those uh, kind of pick a card, any card, show the camera your card, put it back in the deck then he takes the full deck and he throws it against a shop window and on the other side of the glass is the person's card facing out and I was just like man how in the hell do you you pull that off (laughs) logistically oh well the answer is of course that it's magic so that's that's how he does it well, for his, uh, the, the scope of, of what we call magic that he's embraced is, is really quite remarkable. You know, I mean, he's doing about like five or six major fields, you know, and, and being able to, to master those is, 
is really quite remarkable. And I find him quite a charming sort of dude. He, he, you know, he's kind of a stoner, right? He's kind of laid back and, you know, sleepy. He seems like he's sleepy. Yeah, well, he he was kind of geeky and just sort of fun, and like a real kid from Brooklyn who just fell in love with magic. Single mother, uh, not not a lot of advantages, completely self-taught. Uh, I mean, he's obviously, uh, I mean, OCD doesn't even apply. I mean, I think he's in a category all his own. Um, but he really, and he's become very sort of, he's, uh, although he goes fast and can, go with you know for days and, and in fact went 44 days without eating uh he is pretty bulked up now and is uh i think very good looking but he still kept a kind of charm and uh he he uses <laughs> his uh young daughter uh to great effect and they make a kind of a nice combo so he seems like a really good guy despite the fact that he's obviously a profoundly anomalous exceptional being, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. interesting character. Oh, for sure, yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, over here, I'm completely recovered from COVID. There's not even a hint of COVID in my system at the moment. You can feel it when it leaves. Uh, it's just it's a it's a qualitative, uh, holistic feeling. Unfortunately, uh, I think Gus is mostly over his COVID. And Rios looks to me to have about another day on hers, which I don't know why it delayed in her because, but for all accounts, we contracted it, had to have contracted it at the same time. Um, so who knows? Very mysterious thing, but we're mostly all good here. This has been the most challenging week of my life. Uh, of of recent, of recent, I can't think of a more challenging week. <clears throat> Mainly just because, because of the COVID. Yes, because of the because of it taking out you know my my partner in crime, you know right. what I mean, um, and dealing with a baby who, although he he did overcome his fever through, you know, we did the round of alternating Tylenol and Motrin, uh, even though he overcame that the next few days were you know very uh he was just on edge right at just the littlest things would set him off and so it began to really wear on my patience in terms of you know how much of this can i take how much of a screaming child can i take uh and rios to her credit has done a great job um helping but at the same time she's not 100 percent so it's it's been it's been a challenge. It's certainly been a challenge. I'm just grateful that you know that I recovered so quickly because I don't know what this this week would have even looked like if I was out of commission as well. Well, part of that I I'm going to read as uh, you know further proof that you guys just don't get sick uh, very often. So mm-hmm. it's kind of dealing with an exceptional circumstance, and I think that's, of course, all to the good. And, you know, I think there is something when people who are normally very fit and resilient do contract something or have a traumatic injury, uh, I think that um, 
you know, there's there's another level of psychological sort of impact there in, in the sense of the upset of the routine, the upset mm-hmm. of, of the magic system. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it it's a good thing and it's a bad thing. Um, but fortunately, you know, you don't have that, uh, you know, very often. But you guys are living, you know, at close quarters in, in you know, not just physically, but it's a very good uh, spiritual, psychological ways. So... There ain't no, uh, it's like being on, uh, you know, a, sma- a sailing boat, you know, not a ship, but a boat. And uh, there's no hiding from anything, you know, no. The, no. the health of one person is the health of all, you know, yep. And, uh, yep. and that is true psychologically as well as digestively or, you know, food, you know, poisoning or some sort of toxicity or some sort of disease that comes, you know, it's true of everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, we often forget that other part. I mean, we're, we're living in a psychological epidemic, you know, a pandemic. I mean, that's kind of one of our starting points for the whole podcast. So uh, we need to, and, and we're looking for the vaccine there. And uh, we're not sure, we're not trying to laboratory synthesize that one. No, no. I shut all the laboratories down today. Just <laughs> shut, shut everything down. Whoever invented COVID-19, I hope you burn in hell. But, uh, yeah, today, uh, we left off last time uh, during our kind of epic... um, Oh, there's an absolutely... Oh, an enormous spider outside, but what's it doing? It just seemed to have just curled up and died. What happened? Are other creatures living, or are they trying not to die? Yeah, that's, that's a, that. Sorry, I got distracted there. I was just no, looking at okay. my, my screen door. That's fair enough. At this at this very large uh, spider uh, tarantula that just curled up and died. Wow. Solomon Islanders would not call that a distraction. They would yeah. say, you know, <laughs> they would say yeah. that you're you're finding your focus. Well, oh, I like that finding the focus. So let's talk about. Uh, monetization because we're well, we got we've got challenges first though don't forget oh we've, right you've got right. your words yeah. yeah don't jump too far uh i'll go quickly through my band name and uh aphorism uh my band name for this uh week is previously frozen we see that a lot on food and supermarkets i find that now kind of very very disturbing uh, how normalized that has become I mean it's not a big deal but it's a little odd it's a little odd that we just accept it it's like when artificial flavoring sort of broke through as being just yeah of course it is you know (laughs) who thought otherwise you know Um, so previously frozen and they're an EDM outfit out of Munich Germany which is the headquarters of BMW. And they have all grown up in the BMW sort of culture, which is a very, very, uh, you know, they make beautiful machines. They do, they do. Who wouldn't like a BMW motorcycle? I'm not a big fan of their cars, but uh, I think, you know, they're obviously great engineers, but by God, they're engineers. They're German engineers. And these, uh, this band has grown up entirely in a super engineered 
background, and they've gone kind of caveman devo in a Germanic sort of way, and have really destabilized the whole EDM thing with a lot of weird uh, low and high frequency things to upset <coughs> uh, people, to, to alter mood. Uh, they've got a very weird uh, sort of German re-exploration of some of those marginalized experiments that uh, a certain very militaristic political party got involved with. So they're kind of on the edge of silliness and real danger. So that's my band. Kind of pagan, pagan cavemen doing craft work. Yeah, well said. Yes, well said. Yeah, craft work is definitely in their heritage, but they're kind of uh, disassembling it and, and making something that's a little bit more uh, insidious, perhaps. I, I want to listen to that. I, I yeah. That, that's right up my alley. Yeah, I thought you'd dig that. And here's my aphorism very simply. Maybe you can't transcend yourself as Bergson, Whitman, and many others have hopefully claimed. But you can tease the guard dogs. So that's my aphorism. And here is your imaginative challenge. I believe uh, pre your Dallas trip for Rios's birthday that you uh, went to Austin uh, and you visited an art gallery. You mentioned a couple of artists that you uh, particularly admire there. But even if that hadn't been sort of in your relatively recent memory, uh, you've been in art galleries, you've done readings in art galleries. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, we, we say that, you know, the old cliche, every picture tells a story, which is something I'm dismantling in my new workshop series coming out of the, the textbook. And for all listeners who uh, have heard us talk about my textbook, A Guide to Creative Writing in the Imagination, out from Rutledge Press, I would really, really appreciate any and all support in terms of reviews. Uh, Nick, one of our really, really devoted and extremely sharp listeners, uh, was, was on the case. Very, very appreciated. The book is at that critical stage now where it's needing traction in, in the marketplace. But, you know, we say every picture tells a story. Well, I'll, I'm really taking issue with that. But, David, your challenge uh, for today is to imagine yourself in an art gallery, uh, kind of like the one you were in in Austin, or something contemporary. Not a great grand, uh, not like a Mark, the Mark Rothko Chapel or something like that. Uh, it's after hours, lonely, kind of dark, just, just security lights on. And the artworks are conversing. They have become sentient in the dark, and they are conversing. And I think it would be helpful maybe to, to have in mind the artist's that you mentioned a few episodes ago, uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and to inhabit them as if they are living creatures and to perhaps give us some idea of the conversation. And maybe it's not linguistically sensible. Uh, it could be like Michael McClure's bird, you know, beast language, 
or one of the strange alien languages that the writer Anthony Burgess, who gave us A Clockwork Orange amongst hundreds of other titles, uh, invented. Um, but a little bit of the dialogue between works of contemporary art left alone in the dark of a metro hip gallery. Okay? Okay. I like it. All right. Let me just take a couple of notes here. Do, do, do. All right. So we're good, good to go on that. I like that aphorism too, teasing the guard dogs. Yeah, thank you. I dig that. Thank you. And I, you know, and I, and I'm such a dog person and I, I love animals, but nonetheless, you know, uh, my stepbrother and I, we used to, you know, try to break into factories and down in South Oakland and stuff. And, you know, there were Dobermans in the, you know, the Paul Mall of factory, which always like reeked of soap and weird detergents. And, you know, they'd be behind their, you know, diamond cyclone fences at three o'clock in the morning, and they're just doing their job. But we were just doing ours too, you know. Give them a little thing, you know, something to bark at, you know. <laughs> Excellent, perfect. Um, wow, this is a really cool challenge. It's okay. All right, I'm not gonna say anything. Okay, cool. All right. <clears throat> So, monetization. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I think that was a good point to, to have left off. To summarize, for people who, who maybe missed the episode, uh, it was a, an interesting extended one. It was probably our longest one. In part, David was, was coming back from COVID. But we had a lot to say, and we stumbled on to kind of, uh, I, I think, a big topic in terms of, is uh, history in the future which is always an interesting uh, duality there. Is that going to be possible? That was one of our questions. Will iconography and heritage be possible when micro-generationalisms you know, continues to fragment people as media continues to fragment? McLuhan said the medium is the message. Well, that was a lot easier at that moment in time. You know, He didn't have the internet to deal with. He didn't have specialized audiences where you know, you, you can find anything you want. There's a Reddit group for any kind of odd practice, you know. Uh, the question, and, and really David focused our, our, our discussions about a notion, an abstract notion of history and this sense of on the record. Uh, what we too often mean in practical terms is the internet. And we, you know, pose the question, you know, will the internet necessarily survive? What stage of maturity and evolution is it at now? There are all sorts of, of you know, technical futurist questions, uh, future shock kind of questions to, to ask there. But we ended up on uh, a kind of, you know, a really down-to-earth issue which connects us back to... Uh, the past, both immediately pre-internet and, and a much older human past in terms of, of money, monetization. We, we made the argument last time, or discovered the argument, that monetization was a new way of thinking about capitalizing on 
uh, you know, capitalizing. Think about that. That would have been, you know, a perfectly, we could just go with that. We've got the capitalist system. We could have just stayed with that. But no, we, we needed to go to monetizing. How do you monetize something? And this is what, you know, we're concerned about as, as creative people. A lot of our artist friends are concerned about that. I mean, who's not? You know, we, we, want, we need to monetize as much as we can. Um, so monetizing the internet, monetizing creativity, monetizing uh, energy. Let's, let's take it down to a really abstract, generalized level. How do we monetize our energy? That, that, that money, revenue, becomes the measure of efficiency and uh, productivity. Well, my first thought about that was a peculiar, you know, we, we have a very strong language uh, orientation because we believe that language, you know, really provides the clues. If, if words don't, uh, kind of what does? And I was thinking about an earlier discussion we had about values versus skills, beliefs versus priorities. And I think it's worth returning and starting here today with the concept of value and values, because there's something odd about that. We talk about, I mean, in one sense, value literally means what it costs, what something is worth in money terms, right? I mean, that's mm -hmm. certainly one definition of it. And okay, we think well that makes sense. That's just that's a that's a way of talking about cost, and every you know reasonable word deserves to have a few synonyms, perhaps. But we also use the expression value for money. Now think about the difference there for a moment. It's it it seems subtle, but I think it's really important. If the value is of something is what it costs. So value equals cost. Cost and value are synonyms of each other. That's okay. That We understand that. But then value for money suggests that somehow value exists platonically independent of money and cost. Value is a, a deeper something that we apply to the notion of money. So we're constantly shifting back and forth between those two definitions, oftentimes in the same sentence, and we don't necessarily notice that or pull that apart. And I wonder if trying to pull that apart is a good starting point for today. So I, I throw that to you. It's, yeah. Yeah, so you've got me thinking about then, in, because value doesn't necessarily always result in, in money. I mean, I know that. I've written several books that I find valuable that don't result in the kind of money that I would like to see. But pulling... I like how you do this thing where you talk about you know things that we say all the time and we just don't even think about that. The fact that we use terms like value and money uh, interchangeably, whereas like money is essentially it's a it's a store of 
value, I suppose. It's a place where value is, it's something that value is traded for. That's a pretty complex idea right there, I might suggest. Yeah, you yeah. know, yeah, you've got me thinking. Um, you got me thinking about this because, okay, so if we're, 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 the goal here is to tease apart value and money, correct? Like we're, we're basically, we're kind of pulling these apart and figuring out their relation to each other and not uh, sort of taking the easy way out of just turning them into synonyms and saying that one is the other thing, right? So value is, I don't know, the word cost is really mm. interesting to me too because cost indicates uh, a kind of lack. Like what does something cost? What do you, what do you lose when you pay for something? Even though in many cases when we spend that money, when we exchange value for money, uh, we're gaining something. For example, I would much rather have a new book than $14 in my pocket, right? So to me, it doesn't really cost me anything compared to, what I, to, compared to the value that I actually get. Ah, the value that you get. Okay, but you, we, st we, we, we haven't gotten any closer to no. decoding this concept of value, though, of because value. Yeah. It, it seems to be both, on the, on the one hand, it seems to be the larger set that mm -hmm. money, monetization, trade, commerce, all those uh, terms and all those activities, that they are all a subset of value. And yet, value seems to be within the framework of, let's say, commerce, uh, is, is the crucial mechanism. So that's very peculiar in itself. I mean, that one word is, is really, it's not just being used in different contexts. Mm -hmm. It's jumping between different levels of dynamic, complex meaning. It's jumping between dimensions. It's a dimensional well, traveler. You know? Would you would you say that value indicates surplus? That Ooh, a, no. that, some, that something that has value is is greater than the oh. worth of money. Oh, okay, surplus in that sense. Oh yeah. dear, that that because uh... if you say like I got this, you know, you come home and you have a. a a bag full of apples and you say this this cost five dollars but look at all these apples what I just got this is great value well surplus I just point out how strange a word that is because it's completely redundant in a way you know uh, I mean look at break that down you know it, it means sir and plus mean each other you know sir means right. plus vice right. versa. Uh, right. So there's something very odd going on there, but it's not, I understand exactly what you're saying. Uh, let's hold that thought and, and let me uh, insert a really uh, dramatic and melodramatic test here and see if this 
doesn't shed any light on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think surplus is a working term. It isn't quite the right term in this case because I think it means other things. Uh, it means you have a storehouse of stuff, an abundance. Surplus really means an abundance. Uh, and maybe that means what you mean in this context. In some sense it does, and in some sense it doesn't. But let me ask this question. Do you value your family? Yes. Okay. That's a good short, you'd be a good uh, witness, you know? That's what lawyers <laughs> yeah. look for. Keep the answers short. Uh, all right. You value your family. How much do you value your family, David? More than anything. More than anything. More is a crucial word. I think more is getting to where you were talking about with surplus. Correct. More yep. is kind of a simpler, everyday word. We use it all the time. We don't use sur- surplus. is more like an economics term or a military rations term or, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, more we use all the time. So let's, we, we flush that out. Would you agree that that's kind of what you meant there? Yes, I would agree that to that, yeah. Okay, so we've got that going. All right, so you say more than anything. All right, well, that's fair enough because it's your family, a huge, uh, extreme example. Let's boil that down a little bit. Do you... Um, do you value living in Oklahoma? Yes. Okay. Stop there. How much? And let's let's I'll I'll get to go a little bit further with that question. What would you trade? What would convince you? What would make what would be more than that value? What would it take to get you to change? Uh, a dollar amount. Okay. So, so money. So we get to money, money. very quickly. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, it probably could be some interesting opportunity, perhaps. I suggest there are probably a few other things that, that maybe could come up. Uh, but certainly money would, would be at the top of it. So let's look at this in terms of... Uh, I'm rolling out a really new uh, spectrum idea, which and, the, and like good spectra, they uh, it, it's going to circle back around in kind of a Mobius way. I haven't talked to you about this yet, but it, it's something that uh, I think we could explore in visual terms. I kind of want to create a map of it uh, and illustrate it. But at the far, if we use a conventional spectrum left to right uh, linear thing which I will ultimately break away from entirely at the far left beginning point is an animal perspective Uh, and we move towards a human perspective that deals with levels of abstraction and then as we progress to the right we move to levels of extreme uh, abstraction which I call radstraction for the moment uh, which is kind of what artificial intelligence is, is heading towards. And you can at least imaginatively try to put yourself in that frame and think, 
just in increasingly abstract terms that just how a machine learning system looks at things. And if it was looking at this last little scenario of what it would take for you to move from Oklahoma and it takes a dollar amount, so that appears to me a, a commercial transaction. And transactions are interesting, that, that's an interesting word, it's gotten a lot more intense. Transactional psychology is a big deal. But I think an AI system would really just say, change. What would it take to get you to change? You know, and we, mm -hmm. we think if we think about that in more ruthlessly and completely explicit, hyper-focused terms, money and therefore the, the idea of value that we're talking about in this particular instance relative to money has to do with mechanisms and motivations of change. Mm. which I don't think that we often think of it like that. I think that's an, that's an important new way to think of it. Very simple, but very true, you know. It's, mm -hmm. it's like, well, this is what will, you know. And we always think of change as like, well, we'll you know, I'm not going to change my brand or I'm not going to, you know. We, we're not thinking of change in the kind of AI sort of way, you know, uh, a physics way, you know. Uh, as opposed to inertia. We're not thinking of, of, we need to think of it more like that and more like the action in transaction. Mm -hmm. So if it's going to take a certain amount of money to get you to move, that's what you've proposed, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what's weird about that well, there's many things that are very deeply weird about it because uh, an AI system would be going, oh, okay. Um, you don't have that figure in mind, I'd suggest. Or do you? And where does that exist in your thinking? I would... It would be a six-figure salary with health care. <laughs> that's that's the number that's in my that's in my head when I think about that and <clears throat> as a mechanism for change you, you hear people say you know when I made this amount of money it changed my life that's a very common thing to hear because it alters your ability to realize projects uh, it allows you to deepen connection with those around you because you're not stressed out about money all the time it's uh, the six figure and healthcare exists at the top right at the top right of my head, the top right. If I'm at the top and then I just move a little bit to the left, that's where that figure exists. So I okay. don't know what part of my brain that is. But. Okay, okay, look, all right. Uh, we're gonna pursue this though from this kind of uh, relentless AI perspective of, of radical abstraction. What if you are given and guaranteed, guaranteed uh, a very robust, 
six-figure income and health care. Are you prepared to sign the contract and start moving now to the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo? No. Why? No, absolutely. Why? You've not. got the terms. Of, that doesn't seem fair. <laughs> you you issued some terms and 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 they've been met. Fair enough, AI. Uh, well, speaking now to the AI, that's no longer accept. Those terms are no longer acceptable because the distance between myself and my extended family uh, would be too great. And the DRC uh, does not provide the, the stable and peaceful environment that I'd like for my son and wife to live in. Okay, so there were some pretty significant writers, as they say, in you know, contract business mm-hmm. that you didn't include in your initial mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. demands. Okay, mm-hmm. all right. Talk to AIs. This is why I don't. This is why I don't make any deals with the, with the AI devil, because before you know it, you'll be, <laughs> you'll be living on the moon. Yeah, it's also good not to talk to patent attorneys and people <laughs> like that because yeah. they're they're a subspecies of uh, they're like the bottom feeders of. of a machine learning environment. Uh, okay, so so what does that 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 start to show about uh, the nature of values? Because you initially started off with a, a pretty pure uh, monetized sense of, of what value was. You said you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. six figures and healthcare. All of that can be quantified in very simple right. economic right. terms, and then you really jumped to another dimensional plane. And I think this is one of the things that we, we, in, in the Psychic Defense Man, we harken back to the British philosopher Gilbert Ryle and his notion of categories and how we shift between categories often and that's where so much confusion comes from because we're using the same words in extremely different contexts. And that is what he means. but. We often really mean we're going to different entire dimensions, you know, really different dimensions. You, you start off with something that is very explicit and clear and could be, uh, you know, put down on paper very, you could easily sort of work out what that would be, you know. Here's your salary package, all the benefits included, and done. And then there was issues of, you know, the stability and peacefulness and the, the context of the culture, the geographic distance. It was just a whole range of things, all perfectly reasonable, of course, but in an entirely different frame, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we're looking for transformational money, uh, but not, not an entire uprooting. Of, of, of where we are, right? It's kind of, a, for example, I would move to New York City, although that uh, is very close to the Congo in terms of places I would prefer not to live. <laughs> uh, but, but I would move there. 
I would move there for, for that kind of salary. Um, although I'm not really sure how far that salary would, would get me in, in New York. So I'd have to be balancing that out. The monetization of, it, this is interesting because monetization is often used in terms of people's hobbies or, or lifestyle. Uh, you know, like monetize your crocheting hobby or monetize the, the music that you make in your garage for fun. The, the monetization is meant to transform your life as it is where you don't have to change very much. You don't have to transform very much, but now you are receiving uh, life-changing money for not changing. That's an interesting idea. Um, yes. That... Well, I want to go back to a crucial word that, that you mentioned. Again, it's one of these simple words that comes up all the time. But, you know, this is, this is the message, you know? There's nothing simple, there's nothing obvious. Uh, unless everything is simple and everything is obvious. There is that argument. Uh, balance. Balance is a really crucial term that you used. And that gets us, you know, really to the notion of an equation. And I think underlying this whole discussion is the concept of an equation. And that's very, you know, we talk a lot about equality and equity today. And, you know, you hear a lot of people say, well, I didn't, another day I didn't use algebra. And it's like, well, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, if you want to see if you think so. Um, but we're, in fact, you know, doing that all the time. And we're, there are a lot of hidden equations. And in a sense, you know, the rise of, of, of human culture is about discovering hidden equations in existence mm -hmm. and in, in very literal mathematical terms. But not everything, you know, lends itself to mathematical description and analysis. But nonetheless, the idea of equations persists and we strive to have some notion of balance, you know, some sort of, of genuine equity in, in the larger sense, not what the political equity we mean today, but in a bigger, uh, literal, uh, denotative sense of equity. Uh, coming to terms with that, trying to find that in our own lives and articulate that, how we make those decisions is, is something very difficult to do, I'd suggest. I think we kind of let that oftentimes go unsaid and we don't really break things down enough. But if we take some of these big, they're big in, in, in philosophical terms, but they're very simple in terms of examples. What would get David to move from base camp in Oklahoma, you know, to the Congo? Nothing, maybe. To New York, um, more money, maybe. Um, let's go back to our question about monetizing things like the internet and TikTok and YouTube. What is how does the equation work there? What what are people getting for watching some little sixteen year old hottie who may or may not be able to dance well? What are the viewers getting out of yeah. that? Yeah. I suppose How is she monetizing? 
she's monetizing through um well i think it's really just monkey brain she's monetizing the the monkey brain of the viewers who are more than likely being titillated in some shape or form um titillation is a great word yeah so she's basically uh you know if we consider some of these tiktok people some of these late you know voluptuous women um what they're what they're doing is tapping into a primal lizard, the part of men's brains that uh, really enjoys uh, curves. <laughs> we, at the end of the day, we like angles and curves. And um, they're able to turn that into money uh, because, you know, people will. For whatever reason, think that perhaps the coffee that they're drinking is worth is worth bu buying. All of a sudden, it's the you know it's the, it's adver it's old advertising. Sex sells, and it doesn't have to be a one to one connection. I think of Paris, the famous uh, Carl's Jr. commercial with Paris Hilton in a bikini eating a Carl's Jr. cheeseburger. It doesn't have to make sense, but it still works. I get that, but uh, I have um, within, well, I need maybe another arm to, to reach, but I have some pretty substantial evidence uh, that is as, as believable as any evidence could possibly be today for anyone with a basic education at all that argues that as of this moment, today, August 8th, 2022, we have more access to imagery of naked women alone, together, with men, with women, with whoever, active, dynamic video of naked women having sex. Mm -hmm. All for free. Mm -hmm. So where is the monetization? Oh, this is interesting. It ha well, I, this goes back to a theory that I have that people enjoy paying for certain things. That they enjoy uh, giving something to people who have provided them with a, with a service. Because you're right, porn's everywhere. So why do people pay for it? Why, why even bother? Why give money to something? Or why give money to a Patreon? For no reason. Just because you like a show. You know? Why do people donate to charities? You know, when you're checking out at the store and it says, do you want to... You're at PetSmart, it says, do you want to donate $2 to homeless pets? And you think, sure. But why? For, for oh, I, that, that's it. I, I now I think that's on another level. That 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 gets virtue signal points. That gives you know good feeling points. Uh, that's a tax deduction. None of that applies to uh, you know watching a beautiful woman take it up the butt. You know, right. I mean, right. it's a difference. Right. If it's it's a different evolution. I mean, I, I think you were on the case with monkey brain, lizard brain, lizard brain in particular. Uh, you know, ancient primal evolutionary drives, uh, but but there, it, I think the underlying point is there's kind of a mystery 
there, there's a mystery to how these uh, industries make money. And I'll, I'll give you a really uh, sort of mundane example, uh, but, but it's all around us even, even now with a new Saudi, you know, backed uh, professional golf uh, league thing happening. I had it explained to me once uh, how professional golf works as an industry. And I was really flabbergasted it, because you'd think, okay, it's a professional sport. It works like basketball, you know, all of the same. No, no, it does not work. It, it, it only works a little bit like that in very, very recent terms. Very recent terms. Someone like Jack Nicholas or Arnold Palmer, some of these great names who kind of established the thing, they were working in an entirely different economic framework that has nothing to do with today beyond a few very, very straightforward things like, you know, Titleist, the golf, you know, uh, one of the, the equipment manufacturers sponsoring. There were a few basic things that, yes, do apply, of course. But there, there is a mystery and a magic to monetizing things. And I, I'm going to circle around and say that our notions of magic, and we have a very flexible, uh, but I think somewhat rigorous definition of, of that term, that that is exactly the way to think of uh, how monetization works today. It's a very, you know, you could say it's a very crude, uh, down to the ground, nitty gritty version of magic. But magic often is like that, you know. Magic is about effective, you know, affecting change uh, in a directed way. And that's certainly what monetization ends up being. People who pull that off, to me, that is kind of magic, you know. I love that. No, I do. Yeah, it is a kind of ineffable thing. And there are people who are so damn good at it, too. People who, who comes to mind when you say that? I, I think this is I think this is such a complex, uh, you know, really quicksandy sort of subject. We, we need some anchor points. When you just said that, who came to mind first? Joe Rogan. Okay, Com beautiful, com comedian, beautiful. Comedian podcasters like Tim Dillon or Nick Mullen, these people who, you know, are on Patreon raking in $90,000 a month for, you know, a podcast that's essentially just three people talking to each other for an hour. You know, what kind of alchemy is going on with that? I mean, yes, mm -hmm. it's funny, but there are tons of funny podcasts out there. What is it about Joe Rogan? Right, who has hundreds of millions of dollars now? How is he able to pull that off? How how can you get people to pay you that much money to talk? It's it's crazy. You know, uh, one of the, the I I have to say that if there's any uh, subject in the general humanities social sciences area that I really feel deficient in. It's in economics and economic theory, and I it just you know it kind of bored me when I was college age because I, I saw it as you know 
I didn't like the people studying it, and I didn't want to get an MBA and, and do an internship on Wall Street. And of course, now I have some regrets about that. Yeah. But if I had that to do again, what I would have done as a, from a, a, a curriculum point of view, I would have looked at the distinction between uh, extreme, low-cost, high-volume goods you know, little tiny things or services, you know, that you almost don't notice. And then things like a Jackson Pollock painting, mm -hmm. you know, or, a, mm -hmm. you know, a Picasso. Picasso is a little bit too, someone maybe not quite that huge. David Hockney would be a good example. Uh, you know, not as huge as Warhol, but still, I mean, how are the, you know, still, you, you'd need a lot of money to buy an original David Hockney, you know? Uh, right, right. How is that value determined, you know? And for anyone uh, who has never been to uh, an auction of any kind, I think they're fabulous. There's a good reason why they're often used in film and TV. They're great theater. I, I really... I would love to uh, have a project where I was paid to attend auctions of all kinds, from car swap meets and tractor or agricultural auctions to Sotheby's and Christie's, you know? Because there's a principle involved in that that is really, really interesting. And somehow uh, that relates to gambling. And I'm not sure I understand how. Uh, I'm really not sure I understand how at all. It's purely, you know, it's my understanding is very, very crude, and it's at the stick drawing level of that. But there's something going on there, uh, and that has a lot to do with what we're talking about in terms of, because really the whole time we haven't been talking about monetization. We've been talking about the strange act of value, um, and the fact that value can be, you know is a, such a marvelous example of a, of a noun and a verb, you know, at the same time. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't have just different possibilities. It's that at the same time, you know. It's it is, a yeah. self-proving word. Wow. I have to think about this more because, yeah, now we've gotten into this I, I don't know why, but I'm just going to throw this out here. I'm not going to try to connect it to anything. But I just thought of the word headlessness and pictured that uh, that acephaly, that uh, George, George no, was it Pataille who did that? Who had the secrets of the, the acephalic or the acephaly society? I think it was Pataille, actually. Yeah, it was Pataille. Yeah, I think um, that's right. I don't know why, but talking about auctions and the kind of flow of money and the idea of value and valuing something headlessness feels like a part of it somehow that there that it's it's kind of well I'll stop there I said I wasn't going to try to explain it so I won't well that's an interesting challenge for next time because because how to become headless was one of our uh, really uh, very popular, extremely popular uh, episodes and sort of the, the rising curve of the series. And it kind of had a very different, well, 
not kind of, it had a very different context then. That might be worth going back to check out, David. I'm going to uh, uh, put a, a trailhead marker on that to, to bring that back of how headless here, headlessness here, relates back to our earlier discussions about that. Cool. Yeah, that seems like a good place to start next time. Um, would you like to hear my imaginative challenge? I would. I would. I, I'm very. I, I think this is this is so open ended in terms of the direction, uh, and and one of the the things I'm I'm curious about is uh, well, how much setup that you need to uh, to to convey to put us in that situation. So yes, please go ahead. This is a dialogue between a Lenora Carrington and a Carlos Merida painting. And I don't know who's who. Okay. They serve coffee in the lobby. But I'm stuck on this piano. I can help you get unstuck. All you have to do is climb the communion wafers to the leg bone ceiling. Does the yellow girl float? When I was a young man growing up in Guatemala, they brought us into angles like a frame. I'm frameless, a ritual in the dark. I'm a frame within a frame. Would you like some coffee? I'd more like the mace hanging off the guard's belt. Well, whether it's this piano or that guard's belt, Make sure you don't get distracted by the keys. Wow. God, that is just a beautiful, beautiful prose poem. I think that's just absolute, or just pure poem. I think that's just lovely. That, that needs to be uh, included uh, so that people can reference that later. That's beautiful in real time, David. I, I, I'm, I'm going to take you uh, at your word because you're if not the most honest person I know, you're incredibly honest. And, and most of the time, I, and you even acknowledge when you get wiggly. And uh, I, I think you actually did uh, create that. And I think that in this, in this segment, but that is just a beautiful piece of writing no matter when. And it's, uh, it's just a lovely, uh, a lovely example of, of, of great you know, writing unto itself. It, you know, it does connect with an idea that I'm working on for, for workshops about the nature of, of pictures. Isn't it interesting we say pictures? And we also would say pictures depict something. How odd. Mm-hmm. Pictures depict something. And are, you know, is what get David gave us a, a, a narration, dramatization, personification as as he was asked to do yes exactly is that what the 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 artwork would would be notice there was an interaction between the two which i think is really really beautiful think of that there was a dialogue between two works i want listeners to remember that as opposed to david in words trying to describe describe I mean, there you go. I mean, think about that. Unwrite is what that means. Is what, mm-hmm. That's what describe means, to unwrite something. 
that's what a, a kind of narration, as if David were talking to a blind person who couldn't see the image and the story that the picture supposedly tells. We've got a lot of really amazing things to unpack as a culture in terms of the nature of seeing, perception, decoding, and levels of transparency, which uh, will lead us back to our discussion of, of the tool uh, of the transparent file cabinet, which got introduced last episode. But I think that was just beautiful, David. I, I, I loved everything about that. And I also loved your reading of it. I thought that was really... Uh, I, I, I think we need to, uh, to both do some more reading of, of things, because uh, we're both good readers. I, I particularly like your style, because it's not mine. It's, uh, it really suited that piece beautifully. But the important thing for listeners to take away, I think, is to recall it is a dialogue that he created, not a description. And that's a very different... Uh, that, that was what the nature of the challenge was, absolutely. And I wanted that uh, to happen, because describing a picture in words is even if you feel like you're engaging with it you know as if you're dialoguing with it and and that's kind of what we often do when we try to write about art or a photograph and maybe we inherently do that but still there's something very different about trying to wordify images you know yeah yeah no, i sent you a i sent you a picture uh if you're Maybe I'll post it too, in case anybody's interested in the process. I sent a picture of my notebook, and you can oh, kind of like compare uh, what's written down to what's being said, because it's it was sort of half in my head and half on the half on the well. It's more on the page than half, but you know, there's bits that I kind of uh, improved in the moment. Um, I think that's that's very helpful. That's very helpful. That is. Really, uh, you know, I think where we can share uh, our improvisational creative process, we're also, of course, always revealing some, some more of that to ourselves. But I think it's enormously liberating and reinforcing for other people to, to check out and to go back to one of our big themes, which we, we kind of don't like to touch on too much because it, it bores us and angers us is one of the reasons that there isn't more of a sense of writing community or even art community is because people don't do this enough you know mm -hmm, mm -hmm, it, mm -hmm. it's yeah. it's never yeah. about sharing process and you know good lord and we talked about david blaine you know even magicians who are a pretty strange breed of people who who really make their living on the basis of secrets Mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. uh, secret process, they share more than writers, you know, I, I think that's really, uh, I think that's really powerful, David, I'm very glad you, you sent me that, I think you should make that available to listeners, because uh, it is really, really important, and it's very important to the no country uh, ethic of, of crystal radio, pirate radio communities, of, of building community through sharing. Um, cool. Yeah, and it yeah. also connects very... It couldn't be a, a more appropriate way in this episode about monetization uh, when it's about giving and sharing. What, a, what an interesting contrast there, you know? So, lovely, lovely. That might, uh, that's my new favorite response of yours, and that's saying a lot. 
Thank, well, that's great to hear. Yeah, the um, the bit about the piano keys and the keys on the guard's belt was uh, just an in the moment thing because I have written here. Um, I'd like to be. I'd like the mace hanging off the guard's belt, and then the next line is "Don't get distracted by the keys." And I meant the keys dangling off the the belt, and then I realized, oh, it's just talking about a piano. So I think that um, this kind of improv is really generative in a way that solo writing isn't, right? It's important to have people to bounce things off of and an audience, right? Our several hundred listeners, you know, it's like knowing that people are listening adds to the performance, adds to the generation of ideas. And, uh, you know, who knows? Who knows if that would have happened otherwise? So, very cool that stuff. Is, that is exactly, I think, what... Uh, the interconnection always shows us is that there are some things that that are discovered that simply might not have ever been discovered and certainly uh, without question not discovered in the same way at least you know so we need to have that's why we need the pirate radio community idea and that starts with more of a crystal radio idea ourselves of being able to experiment improv improvise and to do that um, in, in, in the presence of other people, you know? I think that yeah. that's a really, uh, it's warm and reinforcing rather than, you know, confrontational. Agreed. Well, I'm, uh, I'm very interested to hear your tool this time because we put off the tool last time because we were running, uh, we had a pretty epic podcast last time. So I've been interested to hear what this, what this tool is all about. Okay, well last time I, I, I sort of introduced an idea of a transparent file cabinet. I started off talking about two things that my stepfather hit me to. The to-do list, which is a basic thing we all discover at some point, and it's a helpful organizational way. I also suggested that it's possibly a way of not getting things done, uh, and then it can defeat action, and I think that's always worth looking at. Sometimes our, our mechanisms, our tools, can also work against us, or as Thoreau said, we can become the tools of our tools. The other thing he introduced me to was, was the file cabinet, and I have a very prominent four-drawer file cabinet. Uh, I use it, I'm in and out of it all the time, which is a crucial part of, of its effectiveness insofar as it is effective. But as I was walking up in the mountains behind me, I thought, what would it be like if our notion of mind and memory was likened to a transparent file cabinet where it was not the container this massive right-angled heavy you know thing that looks very industrial it's it's so not organic it's certainly not uh, well it's very very masculine in a very cliched sort of archetypal way it's ugly my you know I, even when I have cool stuff on top of it, the, the, the thing itself is ugly. Uh, and it would be ugly if it were small. You know, if it were a pill, the shape of a pill or the, the size of a pill, I wouldn't want to swallow it because it's sharp edged and it's just, it's, uh, it's a weird idea. And that notion of filing is so deeply ingrained in our sense of uh, how our minds work, but certainly how our notion of memory works. And so I want to pursue this a little bit further to see if there's something deeply flawed with that. 
because my large contention is that we have made very little progress in understanding how human memory works in a consensus way that links psychology with neurology and the physical physiology of the brain uh, with more cosmic ideas of an unlimited mind. We're no clearer on that than we were 2,000 years ago. We're, we're more mystified. Uh, and as more people suffer memory problems, we're, we're, we're more and more confused. And a lot of that is because we use that term, that word memory, in too many different contexts, which is an ongoing problem that Dave and I try to highlight. But if you just imagine with me for a moment, you've got a completely clear file cabinet. So it's made out of like a heavy-duty perspex, you know, mm -hmm. or something like that. All right, well, what does that mean about the contents? Notice that, I mean, that needs to be thought about all the time. This is one of the, the, the first things to mystify really smart humans way, way back. Form versus content. Container versus what is contained. That is a very, very mysterious uh, duality upon which so much of human thinking depends. Does a, a transparent file cabinet mean then that the contents are all clear? Well, that really doesn't quite work. Uh, so then let's look at the contents. If we're saying this is a model of memory, let's just think about this. I would suggest that if you have a file cabinet, and let's open that up to any kind of file system, whether it be cardboard boxes or whatever you use, I would suggest there's a certain uh, consistency in adult uh, people of what they have, uh, of a certain standing in, in society. I would suggest that you'd have some records about, for instance, your residence, you know, your lease agreement, your mortgage, something about validating your position. I would think you might have some, some details about your car, maybe your health and your health insurance. Uh, but I think that if you're of a certain uh, position, and this would be an interesting social dividing line, I think you'd have some tax records. I mean, that's a legal requirement uh, in America, for instance, and really in pretty much every jurisdiction in some form or another. So you're going to have those tax records. If we use the file cabinet as a metaphor for memory, and we focus just on, say, our tax documents, what do we think about that? Do you have, do you keep your tax records in your file cabinet? Is that a means of memory? I don't think it is at all. Are you talking now about an actual filing cabinet or the still yeah. in the head? Okay. Well, I'm, 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 what I'm wondering, I mean, I, I'm trying to use the physical concrete file cabinet right. as a way right, right, right. to interrogate uh, an understanding of mind and memory that gotcha. Gotcha. Is, is just deficient and why it's deficient, you know, why it, it may not be the right way to, to think of things. Right, right. I like that because, no, storing your tax documents is not a form of memory. It's a, uh, it is a potential for, 
it's an externalized uh, potentiality for a memory should you ever need to have it which might be a good way to think about the transparent filing cabinet in your head because what follows from what you said about the actual filing cabinet is you know if we're storing memories in our head in this transparent filing cabinet is that are those even memories do, do they even count as memories and i would say no but that's because it's in the performance of opening the filing cabinet the the, the memory is in the performance of the remembering Okay, well, that's a really important distinction uh, that's beautifully said, because really what you're saying is in, in the actual performance of memory, there isn't a memory. It, it's, it isn't memory. It's there. It's physically concrete there. Right. You know? Mm-hmm. And what we're calling the memory system, if that's what we can think of as the file cabinet, that's actually a way of not remembering, of not thinking yep. about it. Correct. Yep. It's a way of, I mean, I don't want to think about my, my tax return from three years ago unless I absolutely have to. Mm-hmm. I pointedly don't want, to th- don't want to remember it. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> and this is where I think a lot of problems with the notion of memory comes from, is that we simply don't want to think of certain things. And so we try to find ways to contain those things but not lose them entirely mm-hmm. and that is the the question upon which the notion of memory should really hinge is to what extent you can actually lose it and this ties back into our much much bigger uh, subject which we've approached from a few different angles about the internet and the record and this giant externalized sense of memory I don't need to remember that sort of thing students say because I can just google on it Mm -hmm. well you know I can understand why they have that perspective I really can but I think that that has become an enormously strange culture-wide perspective because when we talked about memory in indigenous village or small scale situations, we talked about the, the grief of, a, of when someone dies is not that they've lost their memories in their sort of Western sense. You know, I should have asked mom about this and we should have done a video and recorded and I wish she'd finished her memoirs. And No, we're not talking about that. In an indigenous situation, when someone dies, some part of their culture, some hard memory has been lost because they don't have a dependence on this externalized memory situation. And insofar as they have artifacts and what we would call, you know, what we often think of as culture, that's often what we think of as culture lowercase c, isn't it? It's, it's memory systems that are external to us that we can dial up or connect with whenever we want to, providing they're kind of like libraries or file cabinets, but providing that we know how to navigate them and we know what we're looking for, and that someone's explained their use and on and on, but they're far from transparent and immediate. Uh, we don't have that, that hard memory, that concrete personal 
connection with it at all. But what's really not often spoken of is that we don't want that. People don't want memory. They really don't. They don't want to have any stuff in their head. They want to have... They don't want to have a filing cabinet or a library in their head. They don't want to have a culture in their head anymore. They really don't. They want to dial that up and connect with it when they want to. And what, they, what we mean by the they, that identity sense, is very, very peculiar. Because in the past, the definition of identity would have been the library, the mask, the dance, the ceremony, that that was where the thing lived, that's where the individuals lived. So why are we living in a haunted, ghostly civilization? Well, because that's where we want to live, somehow. Wow. Brilliant. I love that. That's fantastic. Very well performed. Thank you. Thank you. It's uh, it's part of you know. I, I think we're 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 working on this in the psychic defense manual, uh, which we hope will be coming out soon. We're I'm working on this uh, in the extension of a textbook on a a more popular based book devoted to memory, and the problems that we face with so-called memory problems that exist today, and. A kind of perspective that, that I think needs to be brought to it that psychologists and neurologists are not giving us. And that I think, I hope that David uh, and my discussions will shed some light on, and I'm going to uh, pursue that further. And uh, David, I'm grateful for your input on this all. This is kind of a nice way of getting that, you know, uh, in a focused, performative sense rather than just, uh, and I'll continue to. Uh, you know, I always take notes and, and listen, and, and we'll have discussions off mic, but I like some of these things in the moment, you know, mm -hmm, and uh, mm -hmm. there's, as you said about, you know, your imaginative challenge, there are things that come forward um, that just wouldn't any other time, and there needs to be a little bit of, of profession, you know, not pressure, but, but a little bit of, you know, something like pressure. <laughs> pressure is good sometimes, you know? Right, absolutely. Well, that... I'm still thinking about that. That's, I'm going to be thinking about that for a while. Do you have a tip? I, I know that's af it. after after that. I mean, you don't need to have a tip, but uh, I do have a tip. Um, I uh, I went. <laughs> I've been reading uh, the collected writings of Sir Richard Francis Burton. The, uh, he was born in the 19th century, explorer, linguist par excellence. Talk about the ultimate adventurer, uh, uh, an amazing linguist. He, he managed to learn you know, 25, 30 languages. Uh, deeply a colonialist mindset, lots of wonderful problems with his thinking from a PC point of view, but what an amazing life. Uh, I mean, he's got some things going on that, I mean, just, just some of the titles of his books. And he were talking about somebody who just, just created enormous numbers. I uh, did a beautiful translation of the Kama Sutra. But falconry in the valley of the Indus, followed by a complete system of bayonet practice. I mean, he's just a wonderful, wonderful uh, writer. Um, 
In these latitudes, man lives only between the hours of 7 p.m. and midnight. Uh, you know, it's just, just a, uh, it's, it's just fabulously insane, and, and just the, the, the concrete nature of, of what he's doing is, is so beautiful. But he, uh, I read his book on falconry, and uh, he was heavily into it and knew about it from a world culture point of view. And it's very interesting to see, you know, how widespread falconry as an art form and, and hunting sport practice uh, has been. It's uh, many different cultures have partaken in it. But uh, he goes through a really beautiful, beautiful uh, explanation process. Talk about great expository writing uh, about how to train a hawk. And it's just, the whole thing is remarkable. But his one line that really struck me, you lose infinite time and trouble by endeavoring to educate your hawk too fast. And he does not let that sit there. He gives you an absolutely, uh, his pro style is just simply phenomenal. There's no way to imitate it. It's, uh, it's like Teddy Roosevelt uh, mixed with Arthur Conan Doyle on some strange uh, South American uh, organic substance. It's just completely out there. But his, his point, of course, is don't rush things. Don't rush the nature of education. Don't rush the learning mm -hmm. process. But my tip for this week is don't let that idea sit in your life as don't rush it because that's rushing it. Find a concrete metaphor for yourself that works and applies to the nature of learning, the nature of engagement with subjects, with other people, that's really meaty and down on its knees, scrubbing a drain. Don't rush finding that crucial metaphor for don't rush, for savoring the experience, or at least appreciating the depth of care and patience. I mean, we've become so addicted to time-saving instruments and the notion of, well, you know, taking up my time, you know. We have no capacity to understand the mindset of millions of people on this planet today who live in very different cultural situations, but billions of people over time. We're completely distanced from that. So we need to find a really fundamental metaphor. You know, I, I, I got down, I thought, I'm going to get down on my knees and really scrub one of my bathtubs because I know I can do a better job than any cleaner. And I really, you know, and it was a whole different kind of fitness than, you know, working on the water rowing machine or swimming or, you know, that kind of exercise is sort of fun, you know, mm -hmm. and you can feel like you're doing something good. But when you get stinky and you're scrubbing grime and you're doing something that has all these different social levels, and plus you're, you're putting your body in weird positions and you think, God damn, you know, I don't know mm -hmm. if I could do this all day. <laughs> I don't even think I could do this for an hour. I'm sore now. Right. But, but the patience, the stamina, you know, we, 
Notice where the word stamina comes in today. It only comes in in a very, very select few places, you know? And it's always where we want it, you know? It's always where we want it. You do an analysis of stamina, and it's always in terms of physical fitness, in terms of sport, which is kind of fun and recreation for you know most people. Very few uh, people earn their living based on stamina. There's sexual stamina, often from a male, usually from a male point of view. You don't really hear much about the stamina of you know physical work anymore or stamina in terms of concentration. We need to really reinvent that and really reconnect with that notion of fitness in that sense. And I suggest the starting point is find a metaphor for yourself of some activity, something that maybe you have to do that's, you know, regularly, that you know just can't be rushed. Break it down. Uh, maybe it's cutting vegetables. That's a great one. You got you got a sharp knife. You know anything with a little sort of risk is kind of good. You know, mm-hmm. don't rush it. You know, think about if you can't savor it, respect it. Boom. You got a dream for us? I do. It's a, and I'm open for interpretations about what this. All right, means. I'll put my I'll put my interpretation hat on. Okay, uh, uh, the only possible connection I had was some, and I've, I've, I've basically gone off the news entirely. I've, I've done a news-free, uh, any kind, uh, since we last spoke. Um, but there was one little glimmer at some point that I, I, I bid on, uh, well, this is going back a, a week or so, and it was just seemed interesting anthropologically. It was the sorority girls rush at the University of Alabama, and uh, there were a couple of. It, it's gotten billions of hits on TikTok, and just the two uh, young women who were in the photo, they amazed me because I just never see people who look like that. They're not. Uh, they don't look like women that age around me. Uh, I just haven't been at that kind of university. It's just, uh, it was just another world. But I was in the dream, I was in this just absolutely ultimate archetypal uh, gal sorority, you know, where this is like taken super, super seriously. And I was on a couch as if I was kind of a, the residue of some sort of party. And that wasn't good because everything was just so immaculate and non-party. The party had been cleaned up. If I was left over from something, I, I looked like a sack of you know laundry and old cans on this couch relative to the environment. It was so extremely girly. Girly is the only word for it. It was just so radically not masculine in any any way and not like any feminine uh, environment I'm used to just totally alien and yet ultimate Western culture sort of thing but I had to I had to piss I just had to 
but I, I was paralyzed on the couch. I found it very difficult to move. And what was odd, I, there was a toilet in the middle of this very large, extremely girly bedroom, mm-hmm. like in a sorority house. The toilet was just right there. There was no stall, no modesty screen or nothing. And a couple other uh, guys of various description wandered in and, you know, had their piss and left. And I thought, well, I've just got to somehow get off the couch and get over there. And then I noticed the one other person in the room, other than these guys who occasionally came and went, and there were all these stuffed animals. It's just so girly, just, just, and the whole color scheme. But the only actual female around was an Asian chick who seemed really just not quite right in this extremely white girl, kind of like the ultimate University of Alabama sorority in my mind. And what's more, she was like from another era of aristocratic Chinese, like from some ancient culture. You know, one of the real, not the Mings, but one of one of the even more radically sort of uh, socially rigid dynasties. Uh, maybe like a Tang dynasty, but she was really like a work of art unto herself. And yet she seemed to be completely fitting into the environment. Uh, and I didn't see how that was possible because she was like, you know, an artifact in a sense from another, another world. And I managed to, to get up off the couch and I went to the toilet and I urinated it as the other guys had done. And I felt better. And she had this look of absolute horror on her face and she said you should have known better well it's funny that you listening to you describe this dream I've had similar ones before a lot that have to do with shame but a bait and switch kind of shame where you're sort of not given another option to do something and then when you do it all of a sudden, you're you're gross, or you're going to go to jail for indecent exposure, or something like that. Um, I'd have to give this one some thought. It seems to me to be um, representative of positions that we kind of get ourselves into all the time, uh, hmm. in in which we feel that you know, well, there's the toilet, there's the the thing that I'm, you know, maybe not supposed to say or whatever, but it's right, it's right there, uh, and there's there's really nowhere to do this in private, so I'm just gonna say it here, and um, and then we get scolded. This it feels a lot like a sort of an online opinion having dream. I think that's probably pretty accurate, David. I, th- I think that's the only thing I could make out of it because although, uh, you know, public shame, nakedness, uh, any sort of toilet functions and stuff, you know, those dreams do, uh, you know, recur across a lot. Uh, my dream records show that, that that has not been really something that's come up for quite some time, 
quite some time. I've had a couple of toilet-based dreams, which are actually not about you know physically needing to use the toilet, but about losing something down a toilet. Uh, so this was uh, this was. I mean, if you boil it down, if the way the AI would look at it is exactly, I think what you what you said, um, and. It's also that thing of like you're not you don't really have any options. You're you can't yeah. you can't avoid the conflict, you know. Right, right, right. Well on that note, I think we'll wrap this one up. It's a little bit shorter than last time. But uh, yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. And if you see a toilet in the middle of a room, think twice. <laughs> yeah. Go down the hall. Keep looking. You know, that's the thing. And David, thank you for sharing that work in progress or showing the process that you went through. I thought that was really lovely. And I think that would be something that uh, I'd like to sort of put that piece to some music. I think that was just a beautiful spoken word thing. So very cool. Well, we've got more to look at next time, uh, as always. But uh, thank everyone for listening. Uh, yeah. And, uh, David, I hope you and family continue to uh, recover. Uh, you've, you've been an inspiration to everyone. <laughs>